But the title of the message is Grace Changes Everything. And man, it does big time. And so let's read here verse four. But God, who is, what's the next word, you guys? Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By, what's the next word, you guys? Grace, you have been saved, all right? Raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Like, what does that mean? Verse seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right, now here in verse eight, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, along with verse nine, uh, but we're gonna just begin to introduce verse eight this morning. It says, for by, what's the next word? Grace, you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right, you may have a seat at this time. Well, before us here in chapter two, you guys, and I'm particularly referring to verse eight, is perhaps one of the most famous, influential verses, statements in the entire Bible. Maybe it makes a top 10 if you want to think in those terms. Um, and, and of course, we just read it. And I want you to note there are three huge terms here that are being used um, that mean so much. I, I mean, like, for example, look here in verse 8. He says, by grace, okay, that's one of them for sure. By grace, you have been, what's the next word, you guys? Saved, okay, through faith. You have these three terms, grace, saved, and faith. I'm telling you, if you took just one of them and weighed it uh, in terms of its meaning, and we've kind of used this idea before, we just weighed the meaning of grace, it would just weigh like you know, trillions of pounds in terms of blessing. It is phenomenal. And it far, out, it far exceeds, actually, its technical definition, which is, you know, a gift. Grace is the Greek word charis, uh, and it means gift, it means favor, it means unmerited favor, okay? That's the technical meaning. But what it really means, okay, as it's defined by the Bible itself, is something that is so huge, it, it's like, it just doesn't get bigger and better than what grace actually means, all right? So you got grace being mentioned here. You have saved, right? You have faith. Um, big, big terms. Very, very important to say the least. And, um, and, and if you're here for the first time, um, you know, when you're hearing this, you might think, you know, the term grace, I mean, it is awesome and it's beautiful. And there's a beautiful ring to it, you know? Our, our, one of our daughters, um, Lily, her middle name is Grace, and, and it's a beautiful name. And so you're, you're listening to this and go, okay, you know, Grace, like, I think I could probably use some Grace. Um, you have Bono of the band U2 who wrote a song entitled Grace. So, hey, if Bono wrote a song entitled Grace, it must be important, right? In fact, the song goes, Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain, it could be her name. Grace, it's the name for a girl, it's also a thought that changed the world. Oh, I like that. And then, you know, you think of the term save there. Now, if you're here for the first time, you might be thinking, oh, here's where, you know, I... 
you may have a little, little hard time because, you know, the term saved for some kind of comes off maybe a bit fanatical, you know? And you might think of someone on a corner with a placard. It's like, you know, get saved, you know, turn or burn or something like that. Um, and yet the technical definition speaks of the, of the need that we have for help outside of ourselves. And, and the truth be told, really, um, we need to be fanatical, like when it comes to compassion or when it comes to commitment to our marriage. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, sometimes the problem is we're not fanatical enough, like when it comes to love, when it comes to grace, and when it comes to mercy. When you come to faith, and and thanks for your patience, I just want to give a little intro here before we look verse by verse. Um, Now, that's a term that comes with quite a bit of baggage, to be very frank with you, because it's perceived by a lot of people as anti-intellectual. So it's like, you know, I've come into this meeting, and there's believers, and they're singing, and it's almost like, you know, they're singing these songs as if Almighty God is in the room with them, you know, and it's quite mystical and stuff like that, and and they're people of faith, and I'm not so sure I'm a person of faith, it's actually really important to flush this out. Because here's the reality, please hear this, everyone on planet Earth exercises faith or belief, it's true. I mean, the question is, what is our faith and belief actually based on? Now, someone might say, what are you talking about? You know, I'm not really a person of faith, I'm a person of reason, and I, I, I can understand what a person is saying when they say that. However, please hear this. None of us actually make any decision in life with full understanding. I mean, that's just silly. We all actually are informed by belief or faith. And when we make decisions... There's a moment of vulnerability when we're making the decision, even though we've done our due diligence. I mean, none of us chose to marry the person we married because of some findings from a scientific method, you know what I mean? I mean, I didn't take Stephanie into, you know, some laboratory and kind of work through some experiments. And I just have this full understanding of who she is or what marriage is before I made the decision. Um, Hey, when we hire someone, I mean, you know, we've gathered the data, we've checked out the resume, background, maybe a personality test. What happens next? You step out, you trust, you're vulnerable. And and watch this, it's not until you kind of pull the trigger and hire the person and then see how it goes that then you step into the issue of certainty. Trust and vulnerability bring you to a place of certainty. And even if you hired, let's just, you know, hired a headhunter. I mean, the best headhunters out there that position people in jobs will tell you, hey, um, they're about 30% successful. I was sitting with the guys yesterday. We had a fantastic men's meeting uh, yesterday when I was sitting next to Robert, who was an electrician. And, and he, he, you know, he has an idea of the, of the world of the electrons and things, and he works with them every single day. But he's not totally sure something's going to work when he's put it all together until he pulls the switch. There's that, there's that moment of vulnerability. One person said this. You see, a lot of us perfectionists hate the way in which knowledge works. Because you can't know anything until 
You've had faith. We want to know and then we'll commit. But that's not the way it works. You have to commit in order to know. We want to know before we commit. That's the reason why a lot of you have a lot of troubles you have, one uh, author said. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, you know, Thomas, you believe because you saw. But blessed is the one who believes even though they haven't seen And the point I want to try to make here, please, is everyone is informed by some belief and faith. The question becomes, what is our belief and faith based on? Because disbelief in Christ, like if I don't believe like this, and I don't believe he is who he claimed to be, the son of God, God the son, that doesn't mean I don't have faith. It means I have another kind of faith. And the point that is being made here, we're going to get to the scripture in a little bit, the point that is being made here is the most compelling basis to establish your life, your faith, your belief is on the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, my goodness gracious, there's, there's nothing more solid than to put your belief and trust on than the grace of Jesus than the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's nothing more solid than that. Here's the broader picture. Please hear me. Here's the context. What Paul is doing at this time is he's showing us a before-after picture of what it looks like, you know, you know, what it looks like prior to coming to faith, what that condition looks like, and then like what it looks like after we come to faith, after we put our faith in Christ, in the grace of God, and there's a stark difference, actually. And it's very important that we see it, because that's, that's what he's doing. He's, and we'll draw this out in just a little bit, but he's saying, look, this is who we were before. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Okay, this is what it looks like after grace, after the, the, the greatest reality of all, which is the grace of God, which changes everything. You put your faith in grace? I mean, you, belie- you believe and put, put your life on the foundation of the person work of Jesus, man, it changes everything. And there's nothing more solid than that. There's nothing greater than that. And, and it's actually important for us to really see the before and after picture. Another way of saying it is, if we don't know and feel our need for Jesus, we'll never cherish him as our savior. It's like if I don't cherish Jesus as my savior, I don't have him as a savior. And let me just say a few more things and thanks for your patience again. But before we get to kind of summation of what it looks like prior to coming to Christ and we'll get to the passage in just a few moments. Didn't I already say that? I said that a few moments ago, right? Uh, I, I, I feel, I have to say, I feel a little bit like a piano player going through this passage. Uh, there, I mean, every key is really important. But you don't want to press every key with equal force because there's like a melody to, there's a message here. And, and we, we really want to hear it. It's like I was just, I watched a YouTube video of a man by the name of Paul Smith where I grew up in Southern California. Our neighbor was Ella Fitzgerald, piano player. Sammy Davis's piano player and Les Pauls and all these, and he's just this phenomenal jazz player. And I watched some videos on him, and you know, he was a big guy. And he was just, and when he would touch some of the, you know, the keys, it was like really lightly. And then other ones, he was just on it, you know. So when we go through this, um, I, 
just kind of getting you a little interior of what I think as, as I prepare this, it's, every key is important. Every word is important. And in fact, let me just say, here at Calvary, you guys, we are totally committed to like every word in the Bible. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I mean, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, Jesus said. So, like, God's word identifies what's right, what's not right, how to get right, stay right, and do what is right. In fact, yesterday, I just want to say real quick, um, you know, Dr. John Jackson brought these statistics to the guys that were, like, sobering, like 54% of evangelical Christians do not believe in absolute truth. Although 85% of all adults claim to believe in God, only one in four adults and one in 10 believe in absolute moral truth. And then he cited uh, a survey that basically concluded the church is rotting from the inside out, crippled by abiblical theology. Man, dangerous. Look, here's the thing. We need the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. In this day of major compromise and major distractions where we're wired and the texting and the Twittering, all of these different things, seriously, there's a battle for the minds of men and we need to be believers who are committed, like verse by verse, if you really committed to the original original message of what is being communicated to us. And we are here, so good job for being here. All right, here's the summation. Watch this. Look at verse one. Real quick, summation of what it looked like prior to Christ and then what it's gonna look like after we come to know the Lord. And we, we talked about this last week, but if you look at verse one, it says, and you he made alive, right? Who were, what's the next word, you guys? Who were dead, right? Dead in trespasses and sins. Now, is that an overstatement? No. It needs to be defined. We talked about it last week. Quickly. It means this. To be dead in trespasses and sins means to be dead to a relationship with God the Father in Christ. And it's not that you are dead to God, but God is dead to you. And that's so true. It's like before Christ, it's like none of us could claim a relationship with the Almighty. Oh, we could say we knew of him, but not knew him personally. There's just no way. I mean, how can you have a relationship with something that's ambiguous? How could you have a relationship, even though you say, well, you know what? I believe that God is the creator, is the first mover of all things. Okay, I mean, that's true. But how can you have a relationship with, with I mean, an intimate relationship with just that knowledge of almighty God? Um, it's difficult. It really is impossible outside of Christ. Um, and, and this death can look respectable. It's like when it says we're dead in trespasses and sins, it, obviously we're not biologically dead or intellectually dead. It's like there's, there's a disconnect with relationship with the Father in Christ. It can look respectable because it can mean someone just never heard the gospel or they've heard the gospel But the gospel is merely theoretical. It's abstract to them. It's not substantive. It's not real. I think that's the case for a lot of people. And that's a bummer place to be because the Lord has something so much better for us. And the second thing is, we talked about last week, is dead in trespasses and sins means that we have no strength actually to know God. And and that raises the question, I mean, what is the nature of man? I mean, do we sin 
because we are sinners? Or are we sinners because we sin? And the answer is we sin because we are sinners. We have an inherent weakness in our nature. Look, is that not obvious when you look at humanity? Something is tweaked. There's a brokenness. I mean, look how man has treated his fellow man throughout history. Um, And it tells us there's no part of the human being, mind, emotions, will, heart, that is unaffected by a sinful nature that's been passed on from generation to generation going all the way back to the fall in Genesis chapter three. Watch this. Here's what it also means. We'll get through this quickly. To be dead in trespasses and sins means there's a disintegration taking place. The wages of sin is, can someone tell me? Death. So it's like, man, there's consequences to poor decisions. Even eternal separation from God. And there's this huge danger to all of this, especially when you have, watch this, you take someone who has a disconnect with the Almighty, who lacks strength, inherently weak, in addition to that has made poor decisions that morph into further disintegration. A lie morphs, bitterness morphs, hatred morphs, okay? I mean, those things like, they they continue a disintegration process in our life. The wages of sin is death. Okay, when you couple that, please hear me, within a human being walking a particular course, because notice he said, look, we, we walked a course, the course of the world, okay? I mean, that's not... That's not referring to like a course on planet Earth. That's not referring to the population. That's referring to a world within a world. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 tells us not to love the world. It's not referring to a people or a planet. It's referring to kind of this world within a world. Hear this. That is driven by a messed up, it could be said, love life, really. Because the Bible says, look, okay, don't love the world. That's not to say don't love your neighbor. Don't love the world. It doesn't say like, you know, don't respect planet Earth. It's like there's a system. There's a world within the world. It's the lust of the eyes, the world treasure, materialism. It's like loving things. Be careful about that. Looking them as ultimate things to give you what only God can give you, your identity and well-being. Hey, the lust of the flesh, sensualism, pride of life, ego, peer pressure, the world's measure. In his confessions, Augustine gives a theory of why we do what we do, especially why we sin. Just listen to this. He makes a startling observation. He says, a man who has murdered another man, what was his motive? Either he desired his wife or his property or else he would steal to support himself or else he was afraid of losing something to him or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. Augustine goes on to say that even a murderer murders because he loves something. He loves romance or wealth or his reputation or something else too much inordinately more than God and that is why he murders. Our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. We love, rest our hearts in, and look to things to give us the joy and meaning that only the Lord can give us. 
Okay, please hear this. Okay. You got to disconnect. Here's the equation. Disconnect with God. Golly, that's like self-evident. Lack of strength. That's what the Bible says before Christ. Disintegration. Wage of sin is death. Course of the world. Disordered loves that drive our life in a ditch. Not a pretty sight. We didn't even mention spiritual influence. Not a pretty picture. An even further perspective, I like what John Piper said. Look, he said, imagine yourself in any crisis in the world, captive to a gunman in a French court, streaking to earth in a crashing jet, frozen 10 hours in a bank of, of snow, hovering on the brink with a Jarvik 7. Whatever crisis you can imagine, crisis you can imagine yourself in, I tell you on the authority of God's word, your condition right now in this room and at this moment is more critical and more urgent and more th- threatening without a savior than anything you could imagine. So true. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, now here's the good news. Okay, check this out. Look at verse four. I love this. All right, you have verse four, but, all right, now here's the contrast. There's a lot of hope, that's for sure. But, what's the next word, you guys? God. Oh man, great transition. Hey, with the Lord in the picture, nothing is too great for him. I mean, look, here's the thing. Think about your own life. Okay? If the Lord could take someone, there's a disconnect, it's like a human being's dead to God. Okay? There's a lack of strength versus resurrection power in their life. They have made poor choices that result in disintegration. It can even be passed on to future generations. Okay? If the Lord can like reverse that, like lift us up in position in Christ, make us alive, forgive us of our sins, I mean, set us on a trajectory of eternity with him. Nothing is too great for him. Nothing is too great for him in your life here this morning. Nothing. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Hey, the Bible says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Hey, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I just love that. But God, oh, and let's continue. Look at verse four. Who is, what's the next word, you guys? Who is rich? I mean, like think thick, think weighty. He's rich in mercy. And that means he doesn't give us what we deserve. And, And it's because, here's the explanation, because of What's the next word, you guys? His. Okay, it has to, like he gives us a bunch of what we don't deserve and, he, and grace, and we're gonna talk about it. It's because of him, because he's awesome. Not because we're awesome, because he's awesome. And it kind of just reminds us, it's like, hey, we don't worship him because we're worthy. We worship him because he's worthy. It's because of his great love. I mean, this mercy is because of God's love. Now watch this, with which he loved us. This is a reference to a demonstration of his love clearly in Christ. And this is lot and it's thick, but it raises a question. Please hear this. How does the moral governor of the universe who is perfectly just make unjust men just? Because 
I mean, is there a moral governor of the universe? And who is he? When we go back to, to verse three and four of chapter one, it tells us that like before the creation of the world, before anything was created materially, he existed, he's the eternal one. He chose us in Christ, so had a plan in Jesus. I mean, just if we just pause right there, it's like, what do we learn about God? I mean, even before he created the universe, he's eternal, he's in- intentional, he had a plan, he had you in mind. And this plan involved that we would be before, be before him in love, actually, blameless and holy. Um, goodness gracious, if, if this eternal one is not perfectly just, that's a little scary. Um, the Bible says he is perfectly just. He's the moral governor of the universe. He has to respond to injustice. So how does he make unjust men just? How does he... How does he even make the way that we could even have a relationship with him on the basis of love? And the answer is, he sent his only begotten son to pay the debt of our sin so that we could experience this phenomenal love. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in trespasses, and trespasses speaks of kind of a volitional, intentional crossing of the, of the line, like just disobedience. Sin more refers to weakness, to our nature as sinners. He made us alive together with, what's the next word, you guys? Christ. All right, by grace, you have been saved. It's like, whoa, I mean, well, all of this took place because of this phenomenal grace gift in Christ provided for us by Christ. And in verse six, and he raised us up together and he made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Can someone tell me? Jesus. Okay. Now that I'm telling you is a lot and there's a lot of keys in there. And we, we could spend like months and just press everyone really, you know, really significantly, but can only got to pick pick our shots here this morning. So what I want us to do is I want you to focus in upon this morning. If you look at verse six, notice that phrase, he made us to sit together. Do you see that there? He made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Um, that word sit there is, is super important to the whole book. And we're gonna be talking about it in the, in the weeks and months ahead. But it, it speaks of something incredible and wonderful. And, and I want us to hone in on it. In fact, you know, Bible students of the book of Ephesians will hone in on that term. Actually, to underscore the outline of the, the book of Ephesians, which could be outlined as we, as we are seated in Christ and then we walk in Christ and then we stand in his strength. So it's sit, walk, stand. But... I, I want you to focus in on that word sit together because I want to draw it out and I want you to turn to Psalm 1. I want to show you something. Turn to Psalm 1, okay? Which has been called the gateway to the Psalms. It's like the door that opens up the, the rest of the Psalms and one of the great passages of Scripture. Because as you're turning there, Here's what we have in Psalm 1, which is just six verses. 
is we have the blessed man or woman identified and we have the person who's not blessed of God identified. And they're contrasted, okay? So, for example, he says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, okay, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor, what's the next word, you guys, nor what? Sits, okay, because there's an idea about sitting down in the seat, or there it is, seat, of the scornful. Now, we just pause here for a second. The person who's not blessed is the person in this downward spiral of unrighteousness, kind of this progression of regression, it may be said. And I'm thinking we have some notes I want to put up here. If we can just move that. Thank you so much. All right, right, look. I mean, the intellectual life of this individual is is listening to godless information, wrong counsel, okay? Which results in poor behavior. It results in a path, right? Ungodly choices that determine the path and direction of a person's life. And this is the next idea, if we can put it up, thank you so much. And this idea of being, you know, sitting down, well, through a Hebraic lens, that carries the idea of actually identity. I mean, the downward spiral is, man, listening to bad info, wrong doctrine, Okay, it will result in poor behavior, the way one lives their life, and ultimately it results, my goodness gracious, in that person's identity. How many of you are tracking with me so far in that? You just see that there? Okay, now, the, the blessed man is the one, watch this, who actually meditates, okay, which is mentally choose, like gives like full attention, all right, if we notice here in verse two, that is the one who delights, all right, the delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Okay? Now, if you ask the question, well, what is the law of the Lord? Okay, law means teaching or instruction. If you were to ask, what is the chief teaching? You know, the chief law, if you will, <laughs> instruction of the Bible, it has all to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the message of the Bible is the person and the work of Jesus. And for a believer, Jesus is everything. Can I hear an amen to that, right? He is the sum and the substance of who we are and what we believe. All right, so if I'm going to be the blessed man, okay, or blessed woman, Man, I'm giving my full attention. I'm being informed. I'm thinking. I'm listening to the, the word of Christ, I, I, do who I am in Christ. And it leads then ultimately that my identity is in Christ. Kind of a loose paraphrase of Psalm 1. Um, well, actually, let's continue to read it. Then I'll get a kind of a loose paraphrase of it. In verse three, he says, look, this blessed one shall be a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. So in other words, this person is full of life. There's organic life from the inside out, but the ungodly are not so. The metaphor is they're like chaff. They're dead. It's like no roots, you know. Uh, and, and the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous by the way of the ungodly shall perish. All right, look. If you take Psalm 1, 
Okay. And you focus in on, okay, the, the delight of the blessed man is, is the law of the Lord and it's like the chief teaching of the Bible is the person work of Jesus Christ. And you keep that in mind and, and we just like brought the person work of Jesus now kind of in Psalm 1 and reread it. It may read something like this. Blessed is the man who listens to Christ, who walks with Christ, is positionally seated in Christ. His delight is in the Lord and his position in Christ. He ruminates on this reality, chews on it, allowing it to sink in deeply to his life. He experiences a different outlook. His soul is rich and healthy because it is chiefly energized by God, not circumstances. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, go back to Ephesians chapter two. I wanna show you this. Let's go back to this idea that we sit together in heavenly places. Listen, let me say this. This, this idea that we're seated, that is our position, that is our identity, it is in Christ, please hear this, has always been God's plan since eternity. It's like you think, oh man, what is God's plan? Um, like didn't he choose Abraham? And, and he revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and he chose Israel to reveal himself to and through and and to bless the entire world with the Messiah of Israel. Yes, 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 yes. And that's always been his plan. He's never had another plan. I mean, it's just plan A. That we would what? That we would be seated. Our identity would be in Christ, in grace, before Almighty God forever and ever and ever. He never had a plan B. It was always about Christ going all the way back to eternity past. Like, please look with me in Ephesians chapter one. Just real quick, if you go back to Ephesians chapter one, look at verse three. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in, can someone tell me, him. Whoa, whoa. Messiah, Jesus, yeah, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love. And think about it, wait, if you go back and think, all right, this big picture here, this is very important to understand the Bible, that God um, chose Abraham to reveal himself to and through and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel and give us Messiah. Um, oh, Oh my goodness, that has happened. And the knowledge of the Lord God of Israel is actually exploding throughout the world. I mean, the knowledge of this great plan that is in Messiah, that has always just been plan A, was never plan, no, plan B. So therefore, it's grace in Christ that will carry the weight for eternity. So if you look at verse seven, it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's grace, 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 grace. That's God's plan all along. 
The reality of who Christ is, the reality of grace is the reality that will endure forever. It has been God's plan in eternity and it is God's plan forever and ever and ever. And then he says in verse eight, for for by grace, man, you have been saved through faith. And I want you to see the order here, please, because he first says grace, very important. Then he says saved and then he says faith. But the, the power is grace. I mean, faith is what receives the grace, the power, if you will. We're not rescued by faith. We are rescued by grace. Big difference. Some ways, please hear this. If you get the order messed up, it will mess your life up. Because it's like the confidence I had this morning, waking up, if you will, just speaking generally, was not in my faith. It was in grace in Christ that I put my faith in. So it's like the idea is I have a little faith in a big God that moves mountains. I mean, the the most solid foundation I could ever stand on is, it's not... You know, we'll be get it clear. It's not like my faith. It's grace in Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like, like, let me illustrate. Let's say you're out surfing. We've all been in the, the ocean before. Maybe not surfing with a board, with boogie boarding or, you know, um, body surfing or stuff. You know, if, if you're on a board, the, the, the power is not in the board. The power is in the wave. So it's like you are... You, this, this incredible plan is grace, 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 grace. And you're, you're saved by grace and it's through faith, merely receiving this incredible gift that is in Christ. Timothy Keller said, look, your life will be a complete loss and a complete wreck. You'll have psychological problems and you might completely miss all God intends for a human being to have if you get three thing, these three things out of order. No, it's grace and then it's saved and then it's faith. That's very important. Now, why did Keller say that order is important? Well, let's, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you six perspectives before we have a time of worship a little bit more this morning on this grace. And maybe you want to jot this down, okay? Because, I mean, grace, okay, and, and then we're going to come back to this passage next week and we'll talk further about it because we're just starting to look at it. But grace means gift. It means unmerited favor. But let me give you six perspectives why it changes everything, okay? And I think we have it on the screen, okay? Number one, sorry for it being a little long, but grace identifies what our true condition is. I mean, it's a condition for which we are ultimately and entirely dependent upon someone outside of ourselves. You see, mercy is, is not being given what I deserve, and grace is being given what you don't deserve. So like if a police officer pulled, police officer pulled you over for speeding, if he or she lit you off, that would be Mercy. Okay, so let's say like you're 90 miles per hour. Don't do it, but you're 90 miles per hour down to 80, right? You get pulled over. Let you off, that's mercy, right? If he takes his book out, it happens to be a checkbook, and he goes, you know, I just thought I'd give you 500 bucks for going 95 miles per hour, and that's grace. He's giving you totally what you don't deserve. How many of you are tracking with me on that, all right? Watch this. If the greatest need I have is grace, 
I mean, unmerited favor, that, that gives an accurate view of who Greg Denham really is. I mean, if, if we're saved by grace, it means that we are in desperate need of it. And this is important to understand before God and before our fellow man. It's important to understand before God because it results in an accurate view of who I really am. And it's like I need help outside of myself. I need the Lord. I need to lean on him. And it gives the right understanding on a horizontal level too towards my fellow man because I recognize that my neighbor, whoever my neighbor may be, needs the same grace that I need. And if I don't recognize that, man, it messes a lot of things up. I become like that Pharisee who says, I'm glad I'm not like other men. And that's a killer attitude. That's a real killer attitude, like just looking upon another human being, big, small, black, or white, less than created in the image of God, less like, you know, in need of God's grace than I am, especially in a broken world that needs the grace of Jesus Christ. It's like, like grace changes everything. For one, it's like, gives me an accurate view of myself. It's like, I need the Lord. I need his help. On a daily basis, I need him. Can I hear an amen to that? Look, it totally transforms the way I view my fellow man. That's critical. Because if I don't see that I am saved, sustained, and glorified by grace, I adopt these really bummer attitudes towards my fellow man. I just, I become, you know, political, politicalized, all these hot button issues, and just look down upon other people rather than being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this generation, which is so needed. I mean, if I could just illustrate real quick, that guy that murdered the two police officers just a few weeks ago, how many of you know what I'm talking about here in Sacramento? Okay, all right, that, that, that guy, you know, that, that murdered those two police officers is so upsetting. Oh, man. Um, well, for one, <laughs> um, he needs help. Okay, just, just bear with me. I don't want to lose the audience here. You know, I, like I, I hope he gets the full weight of the law in this life, okay? Full weight of the law. I don't want to call for an amen, but full weight of the law. But I also hope he comes to know Jesus Christ because that is a lost man and sin is no friend of anyone. It just tears people apart. And for him just to turn around and start shooting people, it's just like, oh my goodness gracious. As I get older, I think, man, I just hate sin. It's like the enemy is the devil's full on real. I mean, it's like, hey, two things. One, full weight of the law, justice in this life. I mean, I'm hoping for it. But he also needs the Lord. The whole world needs the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace changes everything. Here's the thing is that it's like, if I don't have an accurate view of myself, I, and, and that is I need grace, I need help outside of myself, uh, and I need the same grace he needs, I'll ne- I'll, listen, I'll never, like, if I had an upper, never go to his prison cell and tell him about Jesus Christ. I'll just say, you know, I hope you get the death penalty, man. You know, he's just thinking, I hope you go to hell type of a thing. And, and that's, that's, I mean, 
Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see how grace changes everything? So important. Real quick, it flushes out the pervasive performance-based identity thinking. The idea of peak performance is necessary to experience God's favor that we often find ourselves practicing and living. That's a big idea. Just remember, hey, the new covenant is based on the Lord's blood, not my sweat. So it's like, man, today, I mean, today is like grace changes everything before Almighty God. I'm his kid. I'm his child. I mean, it's like all because of who he is, his love demonstrated in Christ. It's like, man, awesome. I can have the assurance of his favor and love and hope. Number three, grace brings a security to my life that's impossible to achieve any other way. And the reason is because I can't merit God's favor. And once I receive it, I can't demerit it. It's like I am in Christ. So it just gives me this great sense of security. Oh man, grace changes everything. Number four, grace is to be received. Once it's received, there's nothing like it to keep one moving forward in giving and growing and serving the Lord. It's like Paul wrote, you know, because of this confidence of God's mercy and grace, he keeps, I'll paraphrase it, he keeps moving forward and, and serving the Lord. Hey, listen, God knows everything about me and still loves me. My identity is in Christ. So it's like that encouraging to get back up and honor him and serve him. Number five, grace focuses our motivation to be what God intended in the first place that we know him, walk with him, and obey him, all motivated by our love for him. It's like, well, why do what's right? Because he's true and he ran me down and he loved me and he revealed that to me and he laid hold of me, as Paul said. It's like, Carrie, the idea is like pulling him down. It's like, I didn't find him, he found me. And, it, and therefore, I gladly sacrifice or I gladly obey him. That's an expression of my worship of him. Obedience becomes an expression of worship and love for the Lord and therefore then a healing influence in a generation. You gotta keep in mind, behind the gospel is a father who, who wants to break the destructive cycles of humanity. He wants to deal with the guilt issue, the sin issue, the disconnect issue. And it's like he's, he's concerned. He's concerned about every human being. And we're a part of that process of impacting a generation. Therefore, when I obey him, I mean, I'm a part of like, you know, by God's grace, instead of being a part of self-defeating habits and cycles, breaking those things and bringing healing to a world that is in desperate need of it. I'd say finally, grace, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, grace is Jesus. I mean, not only did the Lord purchase your forgiveness of sins and your ticket to heaven on the cross, but every blessing and answered prayer you will ever know. It's just like, oh Lord, awesome. And so therefore, listen, grace saved, what's that third term? Faith, I mean, everybody operates by faith, some belief. Everybody does. The question becomes, what is my faith and belief founded on? What am I resting in? 
There's not a more compelling, beautiful, substantive reality than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Just like put your full weight in his grace. Put your hopes and dreams in him. He will never let you down. Here's the thing I would just say, and we're gonna, don't pack up yet, but let me just share something with you. Look, where are you at this morning? You know, I mean, are you kind of, because look, for me, there was BC days before Christ, believe me. Um, and it's like, if I were to say to you, look, this is how you're made alive to Christ. I'll give you a, give you something to work with. I'd say, number one, recognize what he's done for you. Not only created you, but he, he, he revealed he loves you. He hung blood, gave his life on the cross, resurrected from the dead. God demonstrated his love. God demonstrated who he is to us. In Messiah, recognize that, okay? Have you done that? Number two, you need to repent, which is an awesome word. Change the way you think. Turn to Christ. Serve him as your Lord and Savior. You say, I don't know if I have the strength to do that. Um, the Bible says to those who believe in him, he gave the strength. Again, you might, there'll be, that, there'll be that moment of a little bit of vulnerability, it could be said. But anyone who steps out and says, Lord, I, I repent. And number three, I'm gonna receive you as my Savior and Lord. And really, he's just a prayer away. I am telling you, if you're sincere about that, he will come into your life. He'll forgive you of your sins. You can leave here knowing you're a king's kid. Now, let me ask you, like, where would you say you are? Um, here's the thing, if I can just say, the Bible says, and I'll paraphrase it, when the truth is communicated, actually, none of us can kind of claim ignorance on this subject. Because the, the truth is so sharp, it, it differentiates between the soul and the spirit, between someone who just, you know, is, is alive emotionally, intellectually, versus someone who's been made alive to have a relationship with God. The truth cuts that. It, it, it cuts between that. It reveals that, okay? And that's a good thing. And I just don't want anyone leaving here without Christ. Because we all have faith. <laughs> the question is what it's in. <laughs> And, and understand the Lord won't force himself on you, man. He, I mean, he, he, he loves you. He loves you not enough not to leave you the way you are. But you have to open your heart to him, if you will. You need to recognize, repent, receive him.